Coaching Inside the Box. A youth soccer coaching podcast. A Brit, a Brazilian, and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box? Hello and welcome back to Coaching Inside the Box, episode three. We're talking Brazil today, and we are extremely excited to talk about Brazil specifically. Philippe did not sleep last night, which is exciting nonetheless. But before we dig in to the episode into the pod, I wanted to mention something that would really, really help us out. If you could give us a subscription, a review, a rating, wherever you listen to this podcast, that's going to help us reach more people, and it'll help more people uh, find us. So we would absolutely 100% appreciate that. Appreciate that. So give us a rating, give us a subscription, write us a review. All of those things would be appreciated um, very much. Um, all right, so let's 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 jump into this podcast. We're going to be talking about Brazil uh, today, and we are lucky enough to have maybe Brazil's favorite non-professional footballing son, Philippe Abreu, with us today. Uh, Philippe, uh, welcome. How excited are you to talk Brazil? Oh my God, I, I did not sleep last night, that's for sure. Also, we were on TV last night, so that also took my sleep away. So, uh, Yeah, I mean, being on TV was fun. Uh, the three of us were interviewed. If you haven't seen it, we'll put it out on our socials uh, probably later today. But we were interviewed about Maestro, which was episode one, I believe, that we, yes, we covered. And, and Fox 4, KC found out about it, and they, they did a two-minute spot. And to be honest, they synthesized, I thought, the hour and six-minute podcast we did pretty well in one minute and 59 seconds. Andy, what did you think of uh, a little publicity we got last night? Well, um, you know, publicity can be good or bad, you know, and, you know, in my lifetime, I've had both. <laughs> and, and so, um, but uh, last night, I thought, was, uh, was a total positive, you know, because... Uh, the um, presenter, Harold Kuntz, did a fantastic job and, uh, you know, really uh, captured the essence of, of uh, how incredibly different we are as, as an organization, you know, and how, you know, while everybody seems to be swimming in one direction, you know, we're beating ourselves to death going in the other direction and, and trying to bring people on board with us because uh, it, it seems so obvious to us. Now, you know, the interesting thing is what is obvious to me has taken me 45 years of rejecting tradition, you know, and the old approach, you know, to, you know, team coming first as opposed to the individual, you know, and that seems obvious to me, but it took me a long time to change. So it's a long and, and painful process of self-examination, yeah. you know, and, but Harold seemed to get it right, right away. It, yeah. it makes sense. He's an Arsenal supporter and a fan of Thierry Henry. And so it would make sense that he'd catch it quicker. Well, than Harold's you. not perfect. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Philippe, before we move into Brazil, though, I want to finish out this discussion about last night. You had a player who was featured in the video that Fox 4 put out. How did the kid respond? How old is he, by the way? Uh, he's an 09, so he's about 11 years old. Uh, yeah, he's one of my best players in my 09 academy team. And I told the mom, hey, FYI, I sent, we're doing an interview for Fox 4, and I sent him vid his video uh, of him doing the double scissor because he executed it perfectly. And I don't know if they're going to put it on air or not, but if I were you, I would tell him, hey, uh, Legends is going to be on TV, we should all watch it. And then if it shows up, he'll 
obviously be super amazed and she texts me like right after like oh my god he had no idea he was cheering so much for legends being there and then when he saw himself he lost his mind and he couldn't sleep he's not gonna sleep blah 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 so that's yeah. that's cool that's cool <laughs> my kids were pretty jazzed about it too they watched it with me and it was it was fun all right moving forward so we're gonna talk brazil today and uh it, I think all of us had a first connection with Brazilian soccer at some point. Obviously, Philippe's probably earlier in life than Andy or I. Um, but my like first connection to Brazil soccer, I've always had a, a soft spot for him because in the World Cup in 1994, I think I was 11 years old. And um, after that World Cup, the only soccer I could watch at home was a VHS tape that I think I rented from Soccer Master because they used to rent out soccer video VHS tapes was the story of Brazil's World Cup and eventually win it. So I knew the Brazilian national team of 1994 much more than I knew anybody else. And I always thought Tafarel or Tafarelli, the goalkeeper, I thought he was really cool because I liked his goalkeeper jersey. And so <laughs> I was at a soft spot for Brazil. So like you, I am excited about talking about Brazil today. We're going to dig into uh, culture and, and, and training and, and, and perspective a ton during this episode. But Philippe, can you kick us off? Can you describe a typical day for you as a kid? I don't know, seven, eight, nine-year-old kid in Brazil, maybe a summer day when you don't have school. What was it like? Well, summer day when I didn't have school. Well, if my parents were at work, I would be somewhere uh, in a friend's house or something. We have a bunch of apartments. I live in Rio, so in the city we have a bunch of apartment complexes. We don't have a ton of houses. It's rare, uh, especially by the beach and stuff. So we always got together in someone's apartment complex, and there's always a futsal court, and we would literally get there like 1 p.m. and play until it got dark. Like it was the whole day playing soccer. Every day. Every day. Was it like king of the court? Like what was the what was the play like? Yeah, it's depend depending on how many kids there were. We obviously we wanted to have a team out to have that competition of having to win and stay on. Um, and we would be very upset when there were like three, four, five teams out. Um, and yeah, and then we, if we lost, we had to sit outside. But even if we had just a few kids, we were just dribbling, doing 2v2s and stuff like that. Uh, just games that we would create and always having a jersey of an international team or a Brazilian team and like, oh, today I'm Kaká, today I'm Ronaldinho, oh, today I'm you know, um, thinking about the best players, uh, the ones that we worshipped. So it was always like that. It was always about fun. Even when we had school, we had a class in the morning and then we had a 30-minute break, which was supposed for you to eat some food, get some snacks, never ate. We would literally storm out of class and run to the uh, futsal court of the school. And, like, whoever gets there first gets the court. And then if you win, you stay on and it's only 30 minutes and there's the whole school so if you lose you're done so you're always trying to get together with the best players you know it it, it was it was crazy like we, we we had agreements like oh you get there you save my spot so i can play with you so we win everything so it was always like that it was a lot of fun so yeah basically soccer was uh in the middle of everything for us um any time of the year 
Yeah, so uh, I want to I want to share a quote um, that Andy had uh, gathered as as he was writing uh, about Brazil um, and culture, um, and it's from Neymar Senior. Typically, children are not in love with football. They're in love with the ball. They play in the living room, in the backyard, on the street, anywhere. It doesn't matter if it's a narrow space, if it may break something. And does that match up with your childhood? Oh my God! So my mom still. Uh, talks to me about all the things that I broke and they, some stuff that could never be repaired that had sentimental val, uh, value for, for them, for her and my dad. But I literally would get all my shoes and use like defenders and dribble through the shoes or I would get the chairs and I would make the chair. You know, I would dribble around the house and kick the ball around and break paintings and uh, I had some white walls on my... Uh, on my house and my mom made me clean them because they got really dirty. Then she realized that I would never stop. So she stopped painting everything white. So yeah. <laughs> it was literally playing on, around the house. When we couldn't get together with the friends, I was playing by myself um, at home and watching. Later on, if, when I was like 13, 14 and YouTube came on and instead of you know, being studying for my math exam, I would be watching YouTube videos of Ronaldinho because that that time he was in his prime, and I would be trying to do everything he did. Yeah, Andy, uh, let's bring you into the conversation. You've always talked about Brazil, and I've got a little little aside because uh, you know what Philippe has just said reminded me of a conversation I had with an old friend of mine. Uh, his name's Ben Papula, and uh similar you know philosophy upbringing uh but different country uh you know ben, ben is actually from nigeria and ben played for the nigerian national team he was brought over to america to play professionally played for the kansas city comets and that's where we met was at the end of his career um you know he was coaching another club a rival club to the kansas city legends and uh anyway just a couple of years ago um, both of our daughters uh, made the Kansas uh, State Select ODP team, and we're in uh, Michigan at the ODP camp during the summer, and we're at registration, and uh, registration threw us together all that, you know, that way away from Kansas City. You know, and so you know, when I had the moment, and this is what I do, I said, Ben, tell me about your upbringing. You know, tell, how did you get to be a national team player? You know, how did you get to have this long and, and very storied international career? And as some background, Nigeria and Ghana are two of the most successful teams in the under-17, you know, World Cup level. You know, they've, they've each won uh, at least three Youth World Cups at the under-17 level. So, and, uh, and so I said uh, to Ben, what was it about your culture? And he said, Andy, he said, let me tell you how Saturday went. You know, it wasn't about one game on Saturday. When we were kids, we would get up and we'd go to the first game at a street, maybe 10 streets away, and that would start at eight o'clock, and we had all these in our mind, you know. And then we'd play for two hours there, and stop, get you know, get a drink, get a bite to eat maybe, and go to the next street where there was games going on that were scheduled for ten o'clock or ten thirty. And then, and he said this happened all day long. We'd go from street to street to street because we knew that that was the centre of activity for soccer, and that was where the big game was, you know. And we wanted to be top dogs. So by the time we got to eight o'clock at night, we'd played in six round robins in these streets, you know, all over the city that I grew up in. And, you know, it sounds from what Philippe is saying that it's the same way, you know, but Nigeria, Ghana, those countries didn't have the infrastructure like Brazil, didn't have the professional game. So there wasn't a place to grow into like Brazil, you know, yeah. and but very, very similar background. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's, so let's bring this conversation back to Brazil, though. Andy, you've always had an affinity for Brazil, even though I think maybe your favorite player growing up um, would have been uh, George Best or Diego Maradona. I guess Diego Maradona, you weren't growing up then, right? But but those players you've liked. But tell me why you've connected still with Brazil. Up, Andrew. Yeah. I'm still a youngster at heart. Don't, tell, you, don't look at the wrinkles. Look at the heart, buddy. Yeah, when he was mentioning YouTube came about when he was 13 or 14, that was about the same for you. You were about 13, 14 when YouTube launched, right, Andy? Uh, 300, 400. These uh, kids were 13, we, 14. We're losing some zeros here somewhere. Yeah. Um, so... Um, you were um, saying about Brazil. Yeah, yeah. You know, what, like, where did this affinity for you uh, so he, come from? He was describing how, you know, in in uh, his era, you know, he worshipped, you know, certain players, you know, and, you know, and so, and I was at the same time as he was describing the players that he worshipped, I was um, envisaging my own dawning of awareness of the international game. And, you know, my epiphany as a kid was watching Brazil in the 1970 World Cup. You'd have been, what, 12? 12 years About of the age. age I was when I, was I watched the 94 World Cup. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and for each of us, you know, you know, from different eras, you know, th- that's the age at which something ignites your passion. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, it was Jairzinho, it was Pelé, it was Carlos Alberto, it was Tostao, it was Rivellino, you know, all these great players that, you know, that dominated the rest of the world in the 1970 World Cup, you know, and, and I was literally, you know, three feet from the TV, just enthralled by these players. And, and so I think that played a huge part in my attitude towards the game because Brazil was my team from then on. You know, honestly, I've gone back into my family tree to find out maybe if I don't have a Brazilian great-grandfather. <laughs> <or something. You> <laughs> That's funny because I looked into my background to find out if I had any uh, uh, family connections to a place like East Timor because I thought at 22, 23, I was, I was good enough to play on that national team. <laughs> Who isn't good enough to go on? <laughs> uh, so let's talk World Cup for a second, right? And, and I want to draw a comparison. There's a quote from Luis Philippe Scolari. I'm not even sure I'm saying that right. Uh, about the 2002 World Cup team. And that was probably like a dawning World Cup for you. So mm-hmm. I want to bring that in. But before I get there, you talk about the 1970 World Cup. How did Brazil of the 1970 World Cup compare to the other teams? Like, was style similar? Because I know World Cups have changed, and we've become much more globalized from a soccer perspective. We play similarly across the world now compared to 80 years ago. There was hardly any similarity. The 1970 World Cup Brazilian team, did they play a similar style to Germany or or Holland or anybody else? Um, You know... Do you want this one, Philippe? No, I'll let you get that one. Okay, so, um, and this is, you know, kind of intriguing because um, I'm looking at the Brazil of today and the Brazil, Brazil of today is not Brazil to me, you know, because, you know, they might have one player that's got, you know, some creative touches like Neymar, for example, you know, but they don't have eight players that play that style of soccer, you know, and um, I look back and I, I cannot recall from personal experience, so I'm going to gloss over this, the 1958 team and the 1966 team, you know, that won the World Cups for Brazil. 62. Sorry, 62. 62. Yeah, so 66. England won in 62. <laughs> <laughs> We've all forgotten. Old guys, you know, it's, <laughs> um, so the 58 and 62 teams. So my dawning of awareness was Brazil in 1970. But for me, the 1982 team was Brazilian. It was an absolutely fantastic team that 
you know, every fantastic team has a glitch and, and they glitched at a crucial moment and, and got knocked out of the World Cup, but they were absolutely brilliant. You know, every couple of minutes, somebody did something that was unbelievably creative, you know, that Socrates would do something and, and you would just, you know, I'd start to salam in my, in my you know, lounge at home, my TV lounge at home, you know, and, and uh, it was a, such a, a brilliant team. It was the best team never to win a World Cup, you know, and I think that's common, um, commonly accepted, you know, in, in expert circles. So although they had a very long gap, you know, between winning in 1970 and winning again in 2002. 94. Um, 94, yeah. Winning in the Brazilian way in 2002. True. You know, because 94 wasn't, except for maybe Romario and Bebeto, Brazilian, uh, the Brazilian team wasn't as good in 1994 across the board. So they, they had this long gap between uh, 1970 and 1994, you know, and, but, the, the teams um, that they've put out, you know, you take 1970, 1982, and then you take, of course, 2002. And those teams were absolutely head and shoulders above the rest in terms of creativity, in terms of individual brilliance. So uh, Scolari, the coach of that 2002 team, right, he, 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 um, he said, you know, uh, he had a quote, but football is more and more homogenous these days, right? More the same. Mm -hmm. The countries are the same. He goes, I, individual potential opens everything up if you dare. I believe the World Cup would be the ultimate test of the individual qualities, and that would decide the matches. And that's what happened. And so he went out of his way to ensure that he had an individual flair to that 2002 team, recognizing that that individual flair would be the difference maker, would be the margin of greatness between them and uh, Germany that they played in the final. So uh, that World Cup had something very, very interesting, which was the fact that Ronaldo played. Because Ronaldo, I believe, uh, late 99 or something, he blew up his knee really bad. Like his kneecap went all the way to his thigh. Uh, and a lot of doctors said he would never play again. And about 2000, he tried to get back and he blew it again, even worse. So they were for sure that we, he would never play again. And that was just two years before the World Cup. He did not play for two years. And right a few months before the World Cup, um, he was healthy but hadn't played soccer in two years, and he was a big question mark. And Scolari, we call him Philippon, uh, which means Big Philip. Um, but he said, I'm taking him. It doesn't matter. So he, he prioritized the genius, even though it was a big risk, that he would get injured and not be able to play and out of shape. And if you watch the games, Ronaldo was in 2000, 2002 wasn't the same Ronaldo he was in 97, 98, 99 when he played for Inter Milan and Barcelona and Brazilian national team. He wasn't as explosive. He wasn't as, you know, getting, he used to get the ball and beat like five, six players he wasn't like that anymore, but he was a genius. So even though he wasn't in his full f physical ability, he was able to score, I believe, seven goals and win the World Cup. And he was the top scorer. And he scored two goals in the final and the single goal in the semifinal. So, like, he decided our games. He sure. was the difference maker. Even 
uh, and yeah, he was in defense the, wins games, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we and and at that team, the funny the funny thing of that team is like the creativity was in three guys. Like I watched the quarterfinals, semifinals, and finals a few weeks ago, and it's incredible. Ronaldinho, Rivaldo, and Ronaldo. They walk when the other team has the ball. They didn't defend. They were just resting and waiting for the ball to be fed to them again. So yeah, hold on a second, uh, because you know the creativity was in three guys. What about Roberto Carlos? I mean, you know, I mean, uh, what, <laughs> the best creative left fullback in, in world history. That's true. That's you know, true. Uh, and Cafu didn't mind attacking. Cafu, oh, yeah, yeah, overlapping yeah. wing. I yeah, mean, yeah. you know, well, our standards are very high, end, Andrew. <laughs> 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 Cafu, top hatted three people one time, you know, yeah. while, you know, this is the right fullback, yeah, yeah. you know, in, in a professional game, international game, you know, so, I mean, that team had tremendous creative depth, but I, I agree with Philippe, you know, I was pulling his leg, you know, there was three players that were just out of this universe. They were maestros, they were, ex- they, they were exceptional. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and I think it's interesting, and like, to, to bring it back to why... And let me interject to one thing real quick. I am addicted to watching like Brazilian podcasts about soccer and former players talking. Sure. Uh, it's Brazilian podcasts, so they're usually drinking beer and talking and laughing uh, and, tell, and, and telling. The English don't drink beer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, telling old stories. And Ronaldo and Rivaldo, they didn't pass the ball to each other. They were like, they both. So when the. After the semifinal, they both had five goals. They both wanted to be the top scorer. And they were like, uh, the coach, Filippon, always tells the story like, I was like, you guys have to pass the ball to each other because you both want to score. And they were like, Rivaldo's like, I'm never passing that ball to him. <laughs> so the first goal, if you watch. There's no Riv- I in team. Rivaldo, <laughs> Rivaldo gets the ball and he shoots. And Oliver Kahn, who actually got the. Um, Goalkeeper MV- of the tournament. Yeah. He was actually the MVP of the tournament, which they selected before the final because they would never select him ap- after what he did. He tries to catch the ball, ball easy ball, that Rivaldo shot, and he rebounds to Ronaldo. And then after the game, Ronaldo is making fun. See, if Rivaldo passed me the ball, I wouldn't have scored because <laughs> he got <laughs> Rivaldo's rebound. So that's the individuality that Brazil is famous for, and that's what makes us different and makes us great. Can we, can we talk about that, though? You know, because... Um, and this is one of the, the craziest things about the society I grew up in and the society over here is, um, you know, the words ball hog or hot dog are used to describe people that dribble creatively. And, you know, let me ask you a question. Do you think they're used positively? Is it a compliment to be called a ball hog? Never. No, 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 absolutely not. Hot dog? No. Uh, so this is derogatory, right? And I'm sure. not imagining this. You know, this is something that people, you know, they go to. It's, it's one of these knee-jerk go-to reactions. When you see somebody who, you know, does a great fake and, and Bambi on ice is the defender, what happens is, you know, there's always people that just knee-jerk this. Oh, look at that ball hog. You know, and, and this is really, really interesting psychologically because if you were to sit the parent who just accused somebody else's kid of being a ball hog, if you were to sit them down and, and show them uh, a clip of, 
um, let's say a, a very basic passing player. So Ray Wilkins of Chelsea, when I was growing up, springs to mind. He got the ball, he passed it more often than not, and he was made fun of in the national press. The ball went backwards or sideways, you know, and he played for England and he still did the same thing for England. The ball went backwards and sideways when he got the ball. So he didn't lose possession, but very rarely did he create anything really positive going forward. So you look at that type of player and, you know, people are like, oh, Ray Wilkins, what a great player. He never loses the ball for the team. Of course he never loses the ball. He never takes a chance. He goes negative when he gets the ball. He <laughs> yeah. never takes a risk, you know. And he never certainly, you know, it, to me, in my mind, it did anything spectacular that pulled a game out of, you know, the, the fire and, and won it for his team. You know, and that's the difference between the, the ball hog mentality and, you know, the um, team player mentality. And unfortunately, these parents that criticize kids for being a ball hog, they don't realize that they're coming from usually one perspective. And that is, my kid's on the team, and while you are dribbling, my kid doesn't get the ball. So the very person that's criticizing the kid that's expressing themselves creatively for, for being, being a selfish. ball hog, for being selfish, is actually being incredibly more so because they're an adult and they should know better they're actually being incredibly 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 selfish sure because they're criticizing a little kid sometimes you know seven years of age ten years of age you know who wants to be like a great brazilian player like a ronaldinho they're criticizing this kid you know and taking away the opportunity for that kid to be a, a super phd in the game of soccer yeah, I mean, they're criticizing the kid for taking a risk, taking a chance, going for it, um, uh, being brave, being brave, taking responsibility, trying to do something that is out of their comfort zone, and that's when they're 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 uh, they're criticizing their kid. But I don't think they they look inward and think about it. But I have a question I want to pose, Andy. You posed it earlier, and I really liked it. And I'm I'm posing it to the audience just the same. When you're coaching or watching a game, right, and one of your youth players loses the ball. Do you get more frustrated, looking inwardly, do you get more frustrated when they lose the ball off the dribble or lose the ball while passing? Right? I, I, I think most coaches, as you suggested, the, the initial reaction, or even as a player, ah, pass it, right? Don't lose it dribbling, pass it. But if somebody loses it passing, hey, good idea. Thanks for trying that. You know, thanks for trying to get me the ball. But I, I don't think coaches oftentimes look inward and think about it from that perspective. Well, you know, let's, let's go a little bit deeper than that. I think there's a coaching psychology that comes into this. And, you know, I, I think coaches uh, like to be chess players. They like to be strategical. They like to plan, you know, and they would like to plan without fear. So they, they look at a kid trying to pass and they see this as part of their scheme you know, to be able to win without fear, without, you know, giving up a ball in their defensive third, you know, allowing the team to score an easy goal. So what they want to see the kids do is play defensive third, middle third, very, very safely. They might actually tolerate a player using a move to take somebody on in the attacking third. But even then, if there's a winger who's got a chance to cross, you know, it's, it's 99 times out of 100, cross the ball, get it into the danger zone. It doesn't matter if it's a terrible cross. It doesn't matter if that kid's an incredible dribbler who's going to beat that defender nine times out of ten and create numbers up in a danger area of the field. Coaches have this comfort zone with, if you like, the mediocre, which is what most passes are. You know? And you know, so when a kid takes a player on using an incredible move and beats a player, that's okay. But it's only okay in a lot of coaches' minds. 
you know, to me, that's my whole goal is to get a player that's willing to take the risk, willing to be a leader, willing to put themselves out there for criticism, you know, in the effort to really build something special of their own talents. You know, why aim for base camp when you can summit Everest? You know, and so, and, and that's the difference. It's the psychology of the coach. And a lot of it is geared around fear. The coach fears lose it. And they feel the embarrassment of giving up the ball in their own defensive third. And, you know, and this is great because, um, you know, I took over a team and one of my best buddies was coaching another team in the same age group. And he had the best team in the age group from a winning perspective. And the first time we played them, they beat us, I think it was 26-0. <laughs> and, and, you know, and he held sorry. them back. I'm sorry, but he held them back. You know, but the reason they built, beat us 26-0, that game could have been a 5-0 game if I had told my players to clear it. But every time they got the ball in their own six-yard box, I asked them to do a move. And they were just starting to learn the moves. And so they screwed up, you know, eight, nine times out of 10. And it was an easy goal that, you know, somebody on the other team would win the ball in our six-yard box, inside the penalty spot. And, you know, they would score. And so, and after the game, you know, said, uh, you know, my old buddy said to me, he said, you know what, I held my team back. (laughs) 26-0, and he held them back. You know, and, and there was another time when, um, we were playing a game and my kids were in the game and it was, I think it was tied at half time and, you know, and I'd been asking them to do moves and they weren't doing moves. They weren't trying anything skillful. And so at half time, I said to the kids, okay, here's what you got to do. You've got to do a move in your own penalty area every time you get the ball. And they looked at me, well, what if I'm halfway in the other team's penalty area? I said, dribble back to your own penalty area. And everybody looked at me and I took them over to the parents before I said this. So the parents knew what the goal was, you know, and once again, we got absolutely thrashed. But every kid did a move in their own penalty area, you know, in that second half. And then at the end of the game, there were some parents who were visibly upset, you know, because it hurt them to lose that badly, you know. And, and I said to them, I said, do you, not think in that maybe your, do you not think that maybe your paradigm is wrong? Because these kids were scared to do a move anywhere in the field. Now the game is over and we got beat again by double figures. As the game is over and every one of your kids probably lost the ball inside their own penalty area. But every one of your kids did a move successfully inside their own penalty area during the second half. I said, now, on the way home to, you know, to your house, are you going to be negative? Are you going to criticize the effort to make your kids brilliant with the ball? Have them have the self-confidence. Do you not see that your kid did X number of moves in the second half? you know, grew in self-confidence. At the end of the day, nobody died. You know, this is not a funeral here. All right? And the next time we play, they will have way more confidence to do the moves all over the field now, which was my point in asking them to do this in this one game. So we took a big loss statistically in order to get a big gain psychologically, where they lost the fear because nobody died. On the way home, the parents still bought them ice cream. You know, their life didn't change, and that was the point of me meeting with the parents and saying, is their life going to change now because you change it? You know, their kids, they'll forget this in a heartbeat. They won't forget the lesson, uh, but they won't carry any negatives forward from this all right, because it's an adult thing. This winning and losing thing is an incorrect adult value. You've got to win first rather than develop creatively first. 
Yeah, and and let's 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 make a juxtaposition. Give me a moment, guys. But uh, let's compare the United States to Brazil here in this in this conversation. And I think I said in an earlier podcast, we in the United States have to manufacture creativity, right? We have to manufacture. Andy as a coach, I as a coach, Philippe as a coach. We have to make our kids do creative things against their better judgment in quotes, right? We have to make them get out of their comfort zone. In Brazil, not, not quite so much. So I'm going to use a, a quote here from Ronaldinho, and then I'm going to come to you and ask a question. And the, and the quote um, uh, is, I loved dribbling as a boy. The way we used to play in the street was no good for anything, of course. If you're playing for five hours, you don't want to score goals all the time. And I love dribbling. I could score a goal, but I preferred to dribble. And so in those, those street soccer games that you played right during your, your summer days um, at, the, at the, the basement futsal court of the apartment complex, did you do Maradona turns in, your own, in front of your own goal or did you clear it out of safety? Oh, I never cleared the ball. Like, and, that, and that thing that Ronaldinho said, it, just think about it. If I get the ball and I drive a bullet in the top corner, who am I going to make fun of? Nobody. I can brag about my shot and brag about myself. But if I mag you, I can make fun of you. And that's the fun part of playing soccer with your friends. I mag you, I make fun of you. I do a rainbow all over, all over you, I can make fun of you. So uh, that was the fun. The fun was who is the more creative, who is the more skillful, who is gonna do that crazy move that is gonna make someone else embarrassed, then we can make fun of them. So it, it was all about we can say that that's bullying but it's not it's kids making fun of each other and having a good time so uh that that was the focus always and it, you didn't play organized coach soccer until 14 15 well even longer like actually i joined the academy when i was 18 18 so i played in school teams and stuff but like not professional coaching or anything. So most Brazilian kids don't have professional coaching at five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, right? So they don't have that external pressure telling them to clear the ball, telling them to pass the ball, right? And so they create, they, they, they from a young age, they're allowed to, an incubator allows them to develop the extra special touch and, and technique, but also the confidence to do such. Yes. And it's much later that they start to get into the tactical side of the game. Yeah, so that's, that's the whole difference. We don't have like the club soccer industry in Brazil. What we have is um, school teams and, you know, the f uh, physical education teacher will like train you for an hour, but it's pretty much scrimmage the whole time. You know, there's not a ton of coaching. There's not, there are not a ton of drills or anything. So the kids in Brazil, well, they, they either do that or play on the streets, you know. So it's when the academy comes uh, in play when the kid is 12, 13, is they see they have scouts all over and they see the kid that is already really good technically and then they get them. So we don't have that club side um, that develops the kid from an early age. We don't have that. It's all organic. Uh, and that's the difference here. Like the United States cannot copy uh, Brazil's uh, model because it's completely different. Everything there is completely different. The focus here needs to be to develop the players, to develop the skills. When the kid is 13 and he joins an academy in Brazil, like he already played in on the streets five hours a day his whole life so he's or he already has the technical abilities he's already skillful he already has that mentality of going for it so it's a different focus 
You know? so, so Neymar, Messi, Ronaldo, Ronaldo, Ronaldinho, they didn't become who they are from passing patterns, non-directional keep away, dribbling through cones. Exactly. That's not, they, they became the way they are by dribbling, by it's, taking players on, by going for it, by having zero concern for risk. There's, it's very, uh, the videos of Neymar playing as a kid uh, on a futsal school tournament uh, is viral. Like it, if you put on YouTube Neymar playing futsal, Oh, he was young. That was before his time on Santos, uh, before he joined the academy. He was just a kid that played for his school. You see the videos, he's already doing scissors, rainbow, like crazy things with the ball. Super skillful. You look and you think, this guy is a pro and he's 12 years old. Like he's doing things that are out of this world. Then he joins the academy and yeah, then he gets into a more structured environment and they develop the other side of the game. But also, like, I joined the academy while, when I was 18 uh, for Fluminense, which is one of the best academies in the country. I don't really remember doing a lot of pattern play, set pieces. I barely remember that. All our drills were, like, playing drills. It was uh, 2v2s, 4v4s, or, like, small-sided games. Like, everything was playing, 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 and a lot of specific training. For example, winger, 1v1. Uh, outside back crossing because Brazilian outside backs are not English outside backs. They go and attack, so they need to learn how to cross. Uh, so it, it was specific training like that per position. When we are 18, 19 there, we are already like professional players in a sense, so we need to be more specific in the, in the position. But it's not as tactical and, you know, as here. And you'll hear often, I mean, there's a a, a giant futsal push in the United States. And oftentimes when people make the case for futsal, they talk about how that's how the Brazilian greats became great was futsal. And while, yes, they were playing futsal when they became great as young kids, that's what you played, right? But I would actually make the argument that it's not futsal that made them great. It's the absence of coaching that made them great. And the absence of coaching just so happened to take place on a concrete futsal court at the basement of an apartment complex or in a favela, right? And, 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 And I think that Going back to our conversation last time, where are the bullet holes? I think we're looking at, at, at the solution the wrong way and missing in American soccer culture that there's entirely too much structure in the way that we coach our kids when they're young. And we're never going to create Neymar, right, with passing patterns and, and, and dribbling through cones there's and non-directional no way for eight and nine-year-olds. So, so let's look at the ethos that I grew up with in England versus the ethos in Brazil. You know, when we were on our own together, we played the way that Philippe played you know, without the extra creativity that is, you know, just part of the culture, you know, so without using the moves and stuff, we'd play one-on-ones, two-on-twos. But the minute a coach got involved, and this is rather interesting because this has changed over the decades, the minute a coach got involved, it was all about how do we win games, you know, and let's go back to the clear it thing, you know, and I always tell my players to clear it is to fear it, you know, and for the longest time in the professional game, there were very few examples of teams trying to play out of the back. This has changed big time recently. You know, if you look at uh, Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool, and you, know, you look at Alisson, the goalkeeper, where's he from, Philippe? Brazil. Brazil. <laughs> why, did, why does Alisson play as the number one goalkeeper? Yeah, he's a great goalkeeper, but what is he also really good at? It's fantastic his with feet. his feet. He's tremendous with his feet. Manuel Neuer, same thing. He, he uses moves, he's a Brazilian. He uses moves to escape pressure that for anybody else not brought up in that culture would give up possession. 
And, you know, this is interesting, you know, and Bielsa at Leeds United has changed the Leeds United mentality and they play the ball out of the back all the time these days, you know, and they create goals at the other end. And I just heard, and this is wonderful for me because I love Leeds United, you know, and that's my childhood dream team, you know, that if the championship doesn't resume, they get promoted to the EPL. You know, so I'm hoping and praying now that it doesn't resume because, you know, for me personally, it's been too long, you know, but the, the game has changed now and, and people are playing out of the back with skill. You know, they're not dumping it, you know, and when I was growing up, as soon as a coach got involved, it was clear it, get it out, you know, and, it, you know, they say on the buddy Ollie, which meant on the volley. And that was don't let it drop, but get it up in the air and smack it over the stand, you know, and you know, let's reorganize. You know, it wasn't about individuals. It was just purely about fear, not giving up a goal, you know. And so this is the interesting thing between the cultures. You know, I grew up in one culture that was complete opposite of what Philippe grew up in in Brazil. Make sense? That to makes total sense. And, and I and I, I, I think like in coaching circles in the United States, we have conversations all the time Like you hear them say, oh, we need more creativity. We need to encourage kids to play out of the back. Right. There's a U.S. soccer put out a push to have the, the, the build out line forcing defensive teams right to repeat retreat behind a line so that teams could or had to play out of the back, removing punting. But but all of those things right are, are great measures. But they're wrong-headed if the perspective of the coach is still built around conservative, right? Being conservative, right? And, and still built around not manufacturing creativity. And I genuinely think in order to manufacture creativity, you have to be as, as extreme as you mentioned earlier in requiring kids to do a Maradona turn in their own box. In, you, have to you have to at least have a paradigm shift where people look at success differently, and, um, and I think we are a very long way off from that, from an American soccer coaching perspective. So can, can I jump in and tell you a story? Because this is about control. Coaching is about control. And when you allow creativity to occur, your control goes out of the window. You know, so this is about individuals versus team. So I'm gonna tell a little story about uh, a few years ago, I was in New Orleans on vacation and uh, I wanted to go to a jazz club, you know, because I've, I've got a great affinity for jazz, not because I love the music, because I think it most replicates the type of soccer I want my teams to play. So we went to the Marcellus Jazz Club, and they did something I'd never seen before. They brought in a top student from the University of New Orleans to play the saxophone. And he got up and did a nice piece, and he got a big, you know, round of applause from the crowd, and then their professional saxophonist got up and blew this guy out of the water, you know? And, and so, uh, and while they were doing it, um, one of the Marcellus brothers was explaining what was happening, you know? And he made the difference between this, um, this tremendous musician from UNO that had been classically trained, and then he made the observation that this other musician hadn't had any classical training. You know, he had taught himself how to play the saxophone and, you know, one piece was efficient and one piece was absolutely beautiful, creative and had so many layers to it, you know, and, and, and so then the musician got up to talk and, you know, the, the expert, the one that had taught himself, uh, who was in the, the Marcellus jazz band, you know, and he said, yeah, he said, now I'll play that same piece next time and I'll do it completely different. He said, this is improvisational. 
So I never play the same piece twice. It's not classically trained. You know, jazz is where you start to, um, uh, you know, as the, the, the piece develops, you join in with what somebody else is doing, and they're putting their own individual spin on the tune. You know, we do not want anything to sound the same the next time we do it. We want it to be an exercise in individuality, in originality. You know, and I'm sitting there going, this is the way soccer should be played. You know, but you know, we've got these coaches, and I made a note to talk about set pieces because this is the finest example. Coaches will train their players hour after hour on set pieces because this is something they can control. You know, it's like, I've got to control something here. I've got to, so what we're going to do is we're going to do this you know, indirect free kick set piece, and we're going to get this absolutely perfect. You know, and you two are going to be involved. You know, and, you know, and so the rest of the team basically makes walls and stands around while these two people practice their set pieces. You know, and so all of this development for everybody is going out of the window because nothing is happening creatively, you know, not even for the people that take in the set piece. You know, they're taught to be robots during that set piece so that we can get a win. And coaches, adult coaches, bring this into youth coaching. You know, the science, so many of the goals are scored by set pieces, we need to have set piece practices, you know, and, but the improvisational aspect, the creative aspect, goes out of the window when you approach it this way. Mm -hmm. and, and if you think about it, like, every team will have a different set piece. So if I have a kid that gets perf perf perfect on that specific set piece, he changes club, go to another co coach, it's a different set piece. All so that. all that learning went out of the water. Yep. Wasted, wasted. Yeah. And, and, and to, to, to piggyback off that or, or, or connect it, so, so often, right, when we talk about coaching education in the United States, much of it comes from the European Academy model, right? Uh, and and, and, and we, we read about and research and we watch the sessions of Barcelona's Academy and Manchester City's Academy and all of this. But I, I think that's, again, really, really wrong-headed. Let, 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 me, let me make my point. So uh, Sir Alex Ferguson in 2010 made a comment um, about there in that year there were 115 Brazilians in the Champions League and there were only 15 British. Tell me again why we should follow the, uh, the, the academies of, of Britain. They're not creating these players, right? In 2018 World Cup, Brazil, Brazil's World Cup team, had amassed just over 12,000 minutes in the Champions League. Spain, 9,500. Germany, 8,000. France, 8,000. Argentina, 7,000. England, 7,000. Tell me again why we're following the academies here in the United States as a coaching perspective, the academies of the German academies, the Spanish academies, the French, the French academies. We should be talking and looking more at what happens from birth to 12, 13 in Brazil for the best players in the world. Well, and that's, why, and that's why what would we're we, wanting to do. Why would we follow the margin of greatness when we can follow the margin of mediocrity? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, but like, again, like here, our coaching style with our club, like that's the approach that we've taken, but that's what we want to do with this podcast is we want to continue to unearth and look underneath, not, not another podcast that talks about the non-directional keep away game or the functional training that was taking place at Barcelona's U13 academy right but the stuff that actually matters and 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 then start to make connections and, and 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 offer some solutions for how we take that the brazilian approach for nine and ten year olds and how we make that work for our culture we can't just pick it up and set it in america because it's not going to work that way but there are definite things that we can do that do work for our culture does that make sense 
It makes absolute total sense. And th there's another piece to this that I wanted to get into. And um, there's this, this book that uh, only came out in the last year or so um, that actually uh, works against something that I've believed in for a long time. And it, the author's name is David Epstein. And he talks about range. You know, and, and one of the um, things he points out in this book is that, um, and, and let's go with the overall premise of the book first. The book's premise is that often if you're going to be successful in later life, you need to have a diversity of experience. You know, and he actually um, has you know, done interviews with Daniel Coyle, for example, and, and uh, Malcolm Gladwell, and they've been big on the individual aspect of success. You know, and he's saying, well, wait a minute, there's definitely a range aspect of success. So you, you're not going to be the CEO of a major international corporation if you don't have a diversity of experience that you can bring to bear across a whole number of arenas. So we've got this interesting dichotomy between developing a tremendously skillful individual, but also a tremendously rounded individual. But even in his book, he points out that Creativity is an individual characteristic. It's not a group characteristic. In fact, he points out that when the group gets involved, creativity actually is dampened down because you, you come to the middle, you come to the average when a group is involved, you know, and somebody shoots down the creative aspects, the ideas that come from the really creative people. And so you look at these big companies that have had incredible success, and you, know, you look at the, um, the Zuckerbergs, and you look at the Elon Muskets of the world, and, and Jobs, and Gates, and you look in history, the ones that have really turned the world on its head have been the individually creative guys. You know, of course, they need a lot of foot soldiers. Once they've come up with these great ideas, they need somebody to actually put these ideas into practice. But we have to develop creative individuals if we're going to get the margin of greatness. And if we're going to, dare I say it, win in the long run. You know? And I don't like the whole concept of it's important to win. It's important to create. It's important to create beauty. It's important to entertain, you know, to be one of those characters, to add color and flavor. And while I'm on this subject, one of my favorite quotes is a Winston Churchill quote. You know, I feel sorriest for the Paul Browns. And Winston Churchill, if, if the audience doesn't know, was, was a very, very respected artist. Also, the most prolific writer in English history. So he wasn't just a politician that helped win the Second World War. You know, he had these other passions, you know, creativity. And as an individual, it allowed him to see out of the box, do great things with the war effort. But he felt the sorriest for the Paul Browns. Why the Paul Browns? You know, well, compare a Paul Brown to a neon pink. You might not like the neon pink, but you sure as heck have a reaction to it. The Paul Brown, you don't even notice. You know, yeah. that one slides by, you go past thousands and thousands of things that are Paul Brown in your daily life. The one thing that sticks out is the neon pink. Yep. The alarm colors, reds and yellows, are supposed to be the best things to wear when you're a soccer team, you know, because they're the danger colors. You know, that's what our local councils, you know, use when they're trying to say, you know, don't touch this, don't do this. You know, reds and yellows, you know, they, they elicit a response, you know, and, you know, hopefully that makes sense. We've got to avoid the poor Browns, which is the get it, give it, possession team game. We've got to create players that are neon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And, and, and ultimately, as, as youth soccer coaches, our responsibility is the kid, not the soccer, right? And so um, if we're going to help kids become, if we're going to move society forward, we need to create a whole lot more neon pink soccer players, right, and, and personalities than, than e Port e Browns. Even better still, Anson Dorrance, he loves to call the special ones unicorns. You know, and what's the classic unicorn picture? It's the rainbow in the background with all the bright colors, you know, with this mythical creature, you know, and we just don't have that paradigm. We're not trying to create this rainbow in the background mythical creature. We're actually like, you know, in inherently adverse to that. It's all about team, there's no I in team, you know, and, you know, defense wins games, you know, and all the pathetic cliches that come out of most coaches' mouths, including mine, over the years, before I wised up and I realized it was about creating unicorns, you know, not just foot sloggers, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, we've got to make this game more creative. And it's going to help in every way. You know, you, you want to watch Brazil of 2002, Brazil of 1982, Brazil of 1970, or do you want to watch, you know, Wimbledon, you know, who got to play in the Premier League by banging it 60 yards down the field and beating people up. Stick it in the mixer. You know, now, if you want to watch you know, MMA, you know, Wimbledon might be your choice if you want to see blood on the floor. You know, but if you want to see artistic creativity, you, you want to watch Brazil, right? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, for sure. Well, guys, uh, this was definitely a fun episode. I really enjoyed it. And hopefully for those of you guys listening, we're going to keep up this 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 uh, this cadence of, of an episode a week and, and some small stuff in between. But uh, guys, tell us what you think. I've, I've gotten a few emails and a few direct messages on Twitter um, over the last few days from the last couple of, of episodes. And it's been really fun to engage with them. And I think I've got a Zoom call set up with one next week because it enables us to connect and have wider, broader conversations um, that we can learn from and, and, and maybe you can learn from as well. So if there's a topic that you want us to cover, if there's something that you think or if we elicit or, or spark some type of thought process share it with us uh, yeah. we'd, we'd love to hear it and on that note please don't give us echo chamber feedback we want the criticism sure the way that you know any anybody grows the max is if they can you know understand you know what the criticism is about why it's being leveled against their perspective you know and that will help us all get better you know and you know, I've got to say that I've probably been the most criticized soccer coach in Kansas City soccer history because everybody else has been swimming with the current and I've been totally swimming upstream, you know, and, you know, a lot of people would say I've been quite critical of people that just swim with the current. Well, at the end of the day, that's how we make improvements is if we challenge ourselves, you know, so challenge us. We love to be challenged. Very good. Thank you, Philippe. Thank you, Andy. And thank you, those listening. Don't forget to rate review and subscribe and, and follow us. us on social media as well follow, yeah we're everywhere instagram twitter we need a pinterest though all right goodbye guys <laughs> thanks guys thank you <laughs>